All right, welcome along to the RT Soccer Podcast. Raph Giallo here, and we're straight into the international break and the start of the Euro 2024 qualifier campaign. Latvia are first up in a friendly on Wednesday for Stephen Kenny's side, and then the big one against France next Monday. We'll have live coverage of both games on RT2 and the RTE player, and there will also be radio coverage on RT Radio 1 Extra and 2FM's Game On, respectively, for both of those games, as well as a live blog on rte.ie slash sport. We're going to bring you an insight on France with French football journalist Philippe Claire a little bit later on and we'll talk about the latest League of Ireland action and the Champions League draw with Graham Gartland but first I'm joined today by former Ireland Sunderland Man City and Wolves striker Stephen Elliott how are you how's it going Ralph yeah not too bad um before we um get your thoughts on the squad the Latvia game and also the France one let's listen to Stephen Kenny he was speaking to Tony O'Donoghue recently about uh, Mikey Johnston and also the Irish attack Talk to me about Mikey Johnston. His uh, his FIFA clearance has come through, and it's a player that I think you're excited about his potential. Will he get a game against Latvia at least? We'll have to see. Uh, you know, I think uh, Mikey uh, is a natural talent, a natural dribbler, who can go inside or outside. Right foot player playing on the left, and has uh, you know has has all round qualities. Obviously, he's played and. Scottish Cup finals for Celtic by the time he was 22 so he's done a lot but he's been out injured for a year and he's come back this year yeah, which is tough for a young player and he's come back and playing a good league in Portugal yeah, to challenge him for a European place so um, that's a different experience for him so it's a, his introduction first time in the squad so we'll have to wait and see. I think people are very excited about Evan Ferguson only 18 years of age playing regularly and scoring in a very very uh, high quality league um, is it too early for him against the World Cup finalists? I think the profile of the strikers we have now compared to what we had say even two years ago is completely different. All of a sudden now we've got a lot of pace and in our, in our, in our forward line, Jadosi Ogbenia has emerged, Michael Ovatemi, Evan Ferguson, Adam Eda, although we're not sure he'll be fit, Troy Parrott uh, and now even Mikey Johnson. All of these players, individual talent with speed and you know give us good options going into the games and you know good options off the bench which we will need and that's important all right so that is republic of ireland manager stephen kenny speaking to uh, tony o'donoghue rt soccer correspondent last week after naming the squad and uh, of course mikey johnston uh, the first person who's spoken about there who would have come through at celtic a winger and who's currently on, on loan at Vittoria Gimoresh. Um, Stephen, how much have you seen of him and what do you make of him? I mean, I was speaking to Graham Gartland recently about him and he was telling me he sort of, um, you know, because there's a lot of comparisons with Aidan McGeady because of the where he's where he's come from. But the fact is he's he's more direct, but maybe less skillful in terms of dribbling. Yeah, I think he's, he's a good option, obviously, for Stephen since he's, he's come into the Irish. Uh, since he's been available for the Irish selection. I haven't seen loads of him this year, I'll be honest, out in Portugal, but by all accounts, he's doing quite well out there after having a disappointing time or injury. But like Stephen alluded to there, he has a fair bit of experience with Celtic before his injury, playing in some big high-profile games. And he's a good option for Stephen. He's a dribbler, like you mentioned. From what I remember seeing him at Celtic, he's quite sharp and he's direct and he brings something a little bit different into the squad. Whether we'll see him, we, might, we may see him in the Latvia game, or we'll presume if we are going to see him We'll probably see him in that force and foremost whether he'll start the game will be up to Stephen but he's another option and he's somebody that, that has come back and he'll have that little bit of hunger no doubt in him after being out for so long and yeah again the Portuguese league it might be a little bit different to what's played in the in the British leagues kind of tempo of the games but 
it's some big clubs playing out there and, he, and he's up against some good players. So it'll be interesting to see how he kind of gels in the group. In the group, Obviously, you're always going to get the comparisons with Aiden being see from Glasgow and Irish and that. But if he can be anywhere, if he can be half as good as what Aiden McGeady was uh, during his time for Ireland, then he'd be doing okay. Yeah, and then in regards to Evan Ferguson, I think we can uh, we can dispense with any talk of him starting or not. He's going to start, and I mean, uh, and and I'd say in both games as well, just to get him up to speed uh, because he's obviously relatively new to the Ireland squad, just two caps in November, but um, two great goals at the weekend, especially the first one against Grimsby in the in the FA Cup. Now, it, I think the question I'd be interested to get your thoughts as as a as a fellow striker, who do you start with him? I mean. Evan Evan has his qualities, but also how do you complement that, or what's the best to I suppose get the best out of him, but also maybe offer a contrast. Yeah, it all depends on what way kind of Stephen Kenny looks at it, whether he wants to put somebody right up there alongside him. It's a difficult one. He has got some players to choose from. Obviously, Ogben he's done quite well at Rotherham. He's done okay for Ireland when he's played. Troy Parrott's just come kind of come back from injury. I don't know whether he he'll kind of into the reckoning, but um, he could go kind of. Three forwards, kind of a narrow three forwards. It, it depends on what Stephen's thinking, but wherever he goes with, definitely Ferguson's the number one choice. I think he's, he'd be a great outlet for any any of the lads there mentioned. I know Adam has kind of pulled out of the squad, so that'd be a little bit disappointing for Stephen to lose somebody like that. But Obafemi as well, does he come in? He's playing in a he's in a squad that are, are kind of finally took a bit of a beating at, at City in the FA Cup, but he's in a squad that are playing right at the top of the championship. So he has options up there, but it all depends on what way he wants to go. Whether he, he might try try a different formation out against Latvia, like you say, I think he will play Ferguson, kind of to gel him into the squad. But for, for regarding Ferguson, somebody so young, he, he just looks like he's been been around for years and years, the way he plays. Obviously, he got some great goals there the weekend in the FA Cup, like some the comp- composure he shows from one so young. So you pro- I'm probably looking at if you're going to play somebody up alongside somebody with a bit of pace. So I'd be thinking maybe Ogbeni or Obafemi. I think they'd be a good kind of outlet off him to kind of run run off him. And because I think I think Ferguson uh, can play that kind of target man. He can do a little bit more than that, obviously as we've seen. But I think he can play that role as well, where players can kind of run off the bat, run off the, off the shoulder of him, and and see how he links up. But no, it's exciting. It's exciting to have somebody so talented and doing so well in the top league and. It makes it makes people in Ireland. We, everybody keeps saying you don't want to get too carried away, but it's very hard not to after after kind of what we've experienced kind of in them front areas over the past five, six, seven years since uh, obviously Robbie Keane has, has retired. And in your own experience, when in the times where you would have played in a two, did you prefer to have a strike partner who was kind of different in terms of their their attributes to you, or did did it really matter? Um, you know, if it was somebody maybe like a target man that you could play off, maybe. It, dep- it depends. Obviously, it didn't really bother me as much when I played. Obviously, when I forced, when I kind of forced broke broke into forced team football, most of the teams were kind of playing two up front, and the kind of likelihood was you, you played with a big lad. Played with Kevin Coyle for a bit, who was quite quite tall and kind of direct, six foot three. I've also played with Marcus Stewart, who was somebody that was a little bit similar kind of player to myself. So I think as long as as long as you recognise who you're playing up front, but and and you can kind of build up a bit of kind of togetherness with him and, and you learn the movements it doesn't really matter and again that'll be something that Stephen will be I'm sure he's been thinking about this for, for, for weeks months probably with, with this game in mind and who he's going to play probably I think after Evan Ferguson broke onto the kind of into the Brighton team starting well he probably had a fair inkling that he was kind of probably going to be his go-to man so I'm sure Stephen has given this a lot of thought over the over the past 
past few months whether who he wants to go with. But again, as long as somebody's got a good football brain and they can kind of adapt well to whoever they're playing alongside, I don't I don't think it really matters whether it's somebody big or or small. As long as they they, they understand that the, the way team the way Stephen is setting the team up to play, they can adjust to that, and that's the main thing. Yeah, and then at the other end, obviously Ireland. When we're talking about the France game, it's going to be Mbappe that needs to be stopped, which is, uh, yeah. I think, pretty much there are loads of teams in the World Cup who struggle to do that, and have, and loads of clubs, or loads of clubs have also struggled uh, to pin him down. So from an Irish point of view, they'll obviously be playing the the back three with wing backs. So when you're looking at a striker and a sort of one off like him with as much pace as he has and incision, are you trying to just? focusing on blocking the supply lines or do you have to just double up on them or is it sort of both a bit of both i don't know i was just wondering whether it was a, a prison cell or something the new amigo <laughs> where we could lock them up before the game and then let them out when the game is over uh but now listen i think we just have to the limit kind of how we can kind of hold us as you said that's easier said than done because we've seen him against the best teams in the world during during the world cup and he was able to kind of turn around any given moment so it's one of them we're just going to have the hope hopefully hope that he has a bit of an off day and, and whoever Stephen decides to go at the back and kind of stop him being as effective for France as, as he possibly can. And we've we got to hope that he doesn't, he doesn't just kind of get the, the run of the Lansdowne Road pitch because you know where he's like, he's given space to run into. He's very, very hard to stop. But I think we just need to concentrate on how we can affect, how we can cause problems for France as well, because Listen, you you, you got to got to take it that France are going to have a lot lot of the attack and play in the game. That's just the way they are. They got to the World Cup final. They're probably one of the best teams in the world, if not the best. I know they lost the World Cup final, but that was obviously down to one man, Messi. I just think we need to see can we affect the game offensively and and hopefully our boys at the back can kind of nullify them as much as possible. Which yeah, again, and, yeah, and and in you know uh, the one thing I think that's often been said as well, we tend to as a I suppose as a football nation, we tend to actually turn up in these sort of games. Like there have been exceptions, like I remember the Germany six one a few years ago, or the, the Denmark five one, um, mitigating circumstances in in both in both of those games. But we have a tendency as a football nation to turn up and you know are very hard to beat in it. So does that give you a little bit of hope that um, you know in in that France game that Ireland? will be able to to i suppose rise to the occasion and even if it is a defeat it it won't be as um, a bit as yawning a gap as some people might expect yeah definitely i think the crowd can be a massive factor in the game do you know because listen nobody expects ireland to win this game do you know what i mean like you're always in with a chance in a game of football but i don't think anybody in football will be looking at this fixture and, and seeing anything other than a, a france win so the Irish players have got to use that as an advantage to kind of use that as a way to prove prove the football all wrong. And again, we talk about Mbappe, they've got good players all over the pitch. They've got players playing at the, the champions, at the high ends of the Champions League, the late rounds, the, the top quality players. So we, we can't just focus on Mbappe. Obviously, he's the he's the draw, he's the main player, but we've got a lot of other players to be worried about as well in that French team. And we just need to make sure that we're set up well. We, every player that, that's picked the play on the evening knows the role and hopefully the crowd can get right behind the team and we can have one of those historical nights because, again, it's it's the first game in, in the group. It can, tell, it can either kind of make us a break. Because, listen, if we lose the game, it's not a disaster. But I do think the performance is important and, and, and we can kind of go out there and put a good showing on. And, and who knows if we can get something from the game, then what a confidence boost that that will be going forward in the group.
Yeah, and from your own experience, I think around 2005 and six, you would have been in squads and also played in some of the games against France, Germany, Italy, and they were close games in the end. I think they were all, they uh, Ireland lost only uh, by a goal in each each one of those, and they're they're the three sort of three of the leading nations yeah. at the time. How did you prepare for those um, for those type of opponents? I mean, was the focus um, like you, like you're saying with the France game? We need there needs to be a focus on what Ireland can do to hurt them as well, not just be totally obsessed with Mbappe and everything else. But at, at that time, and it would have been around the time that Brian Kerr would have been yeah. involved, and then Staunton. What? How, how much focus was there on stopping them? And was there also that other thing of you know we can actually do something as well um, from our side? Yeah, definitely. I remember the France game back. back then. I think they beat us one 0 free kick. If I remember correctly, is it on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was one of them where you kind of in preparation for the game all week. We as a squad, we kind of tried to set up and try and work on ways that we can stop them being as effective. I think I'll go back. We're going back at that French squad. They, they had some really kind of top top players, but we had a good team. We had a really good strong kind of core player core group playing at the top ends of the Premier League back then. So we we felt like we. As a squad, like those players there, like obviously Robbie Keane, Damien Duff, players that were really able to kind of put up against anybody in world football at that stage. So we, we always felt like we had threats if we could kind of be organised and, and 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 stay in the game, which which we did. We never really took any kind of batterings, but obviously, like you said there, them kind of it's still a defeat at the end of the day, but there's a manner of losing games, you know, rather than kind of going out and losing fours and fives. If you can kind of stay in the game, you can get the crowd on side and you just never know. We'll go back even a little before that one. Jason McAteer scored that goal against Holland, like we all remember where we were watching that game. And it, it's the Portugal game as well around that time. These are these are big games where you just you just never know. And you, you gotta cling on to that belief. That's it's more of a belief than anything. But ultimately, Stephen Kenny and the players have a chance to kind of to do something about that belief that the Irish public will have. They can try and get as organized as properly, try and put a game plan in place wherever the, the beauty is he has this kind of week and a bit beforehand to try and put a plan in place because it's it's very hard for international managers to kind of get their ideas across when they have, have players for three or four days, especially when they come in drips and drafts with some players playing on the Saturday, some playing on the Sunday. So at least now Stephen will have a full full week or so, or a little bit longer than a week with the team to, to, to decide what way he wants to go about, I say stopping France, but that ultimately what, what the aim will be, stopping their kind of threats and, and hopefully have a little bit of a game plan where we can affect them in, in the in the other parts of the pitch, which Listen, we've got, like Stephen mentioned, we have pace up top. We've got a player playing in the Premier League that's scoring goals. So we do have threats our own, but it's just keeping the door shut. It's stay in the game and you just never know, right? Yeah, and then the Latvia game, uh, which is uh, it's going to be a few days before the France game. Do you, from your point of view, do you think it, the wisest thing is actually to kind of field almost the team that is going to start against France and then you can make a good few substitutions as uh, as the game wears on then? I think so, yeah. I think because you got to look at the even defensive areas there. You look at Nathan Collins, and again, he hasn't played really regularly for Wolves in recent times. I think he's only played about 90-odd minutes since since January, which isn't a lot of football. And I know Steve has always said that you need to be playing club, club football to be getting in the team, but it might be a good good occasion to get players. Obviously, Matt Doherty, if he's going to be starting, he hasn't played loads for Atletico Madrid since he's gone out to Spain. So it might be a time to kind of get minutes in, in players' legs. Evan Ferguson... Do you want to give them that international experience before the big game against France? But I'm sure, like again, you can make changes in these games. I'm sure you want to get as get a look at as many players as possible without disrespecting the kind of game and, and the international fixture. But no, it's it's obviously everybody. You, 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 we got the Latvia game, but in the back of everybody's heads will be the French game. It'll be the big one. But it's a chance for Stephen to walk on on kind of a style of play 
I would expect Ireland to have a little bit more of the ball against Latvia, no matter who, what, what kind of team he puts out regarding in comparison to what the French game will be like. But listen, it's a chance to build up some confidence, build up a bit of cohesiveness within the, within the team. So I don't think it'd be a bad idea to kind of try and go with as similar kind of enough 11 that what you're going to go in the France games. So it just builds up that, that feeling around the, around the team and everybody knows where they need to be. So, yeah, be, although it's not massively important result-wise, I think it's, it'll be very interesting to see what Stephen does in the Latvia game and, and how the lads perform. Yeah, and a, a final point for before I let you go. So the Arsenal-Crystal Palace game uh, yesterday, um, Paddy McCarthy got the opportunity to step up as a caretaker manager. Now, looking back through his career, he would have come true at Man City. And at around the same time as yourself, would you have known him quite well? And uh, I mean, was he somebody even, and this is a very long time ago, so when yeah. we're talking about, like, can you see somebody being a manager? It's probably not a realistic question at the time. But um, like in terms of his qualities, are there things that you would have seen then that you thought, okay, maybe, you know, 20 years down the line, he's uh, there's potential, uh, there's somebody who's interested in the game in a certain way. No, well, listen, I was, it, was, it was great to see Paddy yesterday. Obviously, we, we spent four or five years together. Myself, Paddy, Glenn Whelan, Willow Flood, Stephen Paisley. It was a right core group of Irish lads. Brian Morphy as well, uh, from Warwick, who came over to City at the, at the same time. And we kind of grew up together and became men together. And, and it was great to see Paddy on the, on the, on the side there for, um, taking Crystal Palace. Game. Obviously, the result didn't go well, but I felt, I felt Crystal Palace did okay in the game. He looked organised and he carried a goal threat. But... Regarding your question, did I see Paddy as a manager? One thing about Paddy was he was he was a winner and he was a leader and he he led by example. He he kind of again going back I'm going back a long time here. Was he the, the, at the time was he like somebody that you'd think yeah he's going to be a manager and a coach? I'm not sure. Maybe in my, like he, he did have that kind of drive about where you kind of look to him. He was more often than not our, our captain, both in the younger international age groups and in the U team at City. So he always had that kind of leadership quality about him. And I'm not massively surprised to kind of to see him on the to see him on the side. He's worked really hard. He, he's obviously had to he's had a, a few downs in his playing career. He's had to stop playing early, and he's he's re- regrouped and he's he's got his coaching badges together, and he and he's worked hard all through the Crystal Palace Academy. I think he's been at the club for 14, 15 years as a whole, including his playing career. So he deserved that opportunity on Saturday, and I'd love to see see him kind of stay in the job from now till the end of the season as I said he's got a great affiliation with the football club he understands how it ticks and again Ra, I know there's talk of bringing Roy Hodgson in which I'm sure I can see the arguments for that steady hand knows knows the club really well very passionate about the club but if you're going to look at somebody a bit different then why not Paddy he knows all the young lads as well all the good players he would have worked with them for, for the last two three four years and Again, Crystal Palace have great history of bringing young players through into the, the fourth team. So, again, if you think about something outside the box, then I'd love to see Paddy kind of stay in the job there. I think he carried himself really well, both in the kind of match interviews and, and the, sorry, the pre-match interviews and the post-match interviews. And I'm sure he's kind of sitting at home over the international weekend. I'm sure he's going to discuss with the, with the board at Palace whether, whether he's going to stay in charge for a bit longer, whether they're going to bring somebody else in. But whether he does, does get the job now or... Or, or not, I do think he's going to be a manager and, and a, a very good manager at that because, again, he, he, he not, he, he's learned the game well over the years and he, he is a proper leader and I wish him all the best. All right, good stuff. Um, anyway, now it's time to get an insight on France with football journalist Philippe Beauclair, whose work in a range of publications speaks for itself and who's very familiar with our own country. But uh, before we do that, Stephen Elliott, thanks for taking the time and uh, best of luck. Cheers, Rap. Take care, mate. It's a pleasure to be joined by football journalist Philippe Beauclair as we look to get a valuable insight into the French team ahead of the Euro 2024 qualifier on 27th March at the Aviva Stadium. 
obviously Ireland being the uh, French's opposition. And Philippe, thanks a million for uh, taking the time to chat to us on the podcast. Uh, obviously, la- yeah, obviously, the last time everyone saw France was not so long ago. It was December's <laughs> World Cup final. What was a classic match against Argentina? Obviously, they just fell short on penalties. But, you know, there was a lot of scrutiny on Deschamps and the French team going into the tournament. What do you feel that World Cup run has actually done for his reputation, but also that of the squad and how they're perceived by the French public? Uh... I, I would say that perhaps as a national team manager, this was probably his um, his highest uh, achievement. This uh, it was certainly a very very tough ask. We got to remember how it was. Things were shaping up before the tournament, where there were at one point thirteen players who were injured, uh, and I mean thirteen genuine contenders for a place in the twenty twenty five or twenty six. Uh, and in fact, um, France was so bereft of players that. Um, didn't, they didn't go to Qatar with a full contingent. Uh, and we're talking about really important players who were doubtful or couldn't make it or were doubtful or played on one leg, as we say in French, uh, for the tournament. And doing what they did uh, was probably exceeding people's expectations. Uh, many people were thinking, uh, and I, I include myself in that, that even the group phase would prove quite tricky for the French. But the way they managed to find means to go past their opponents, sometimes playing some absolutely beautiful football, and and that final, and the way they reacted despite not being there for the first hour, uh, suddenly when when the tournament finished, a it was sure that Didier Deschamps would stay in place if he wanted to. He had achieved his uh, his objective, which was a place in the semi-finals, and b I think his stature as a as a national team manager. Um, was heightened by that tournament uh, because, you know, who were the main architects of the victory in 2018, apart from Kylian Mbappe, of course, Antoine Griezmann, uh, but two players called Paul Pogba and Golokante, neither of whom was in Qatar. And to manage to reshape the team uh, without those two really important players was um, something I think many people simply admired. And um, also there were choices that surprised I think most observers, the reinvention of Antoine Griezmann as a kind of deep line playmaker and the way in which uh, Griezmann flourished in that role was probably something that people were not expecting. Didier Deschamps was supposed to be quite an unimaginative manager, coach, tactician and so forth. There he surprised us. He found a solution to a genuine problem. So when when the World Cup finished, uh, I would say that the way that Deschamps um, Deschamps was rated uh, not just with the French FA, not just with people who were analysing the game, but with the French public at large, I think was as high as it's ever been. Yeah. Um, but but now, just as he had to face a difficult challenge and a genuine challenge before the, the, the World Cup in Qatar, he has to face another one because the team that we're going to see from now on is not the team that went to the final in Doha. Okay. Before we get on to the squad also, his position, um, obviously he's been in charge for 11 years up to this point, but he extended yeah. his contract in January, which will take him to 2026, which is going to be a remarkably long tenure. But interestingly, in the background with the French Football Federation, Noel Legray, who was uh, appointed as the president of the FFF just a year before Deschamps took charge and has overlapped with him, has resigned just uh, <laughs> just last month. Now, does that weaken Deschamps' position? I mean, was there sort of an alliance there between between them, given that they overlapped for so long? 
I think there was a, a, a I wouldn't say an alliance as such. I, I think there was a an understanding, and I think Noel Legret in many ways uh, was um, piggybacking on the success of uh, Didier Deschamps' team. Um, Legret, as he said, uh, has left. Uh, he will probably take on a position as head of the FIFA office in Paris, which is causing some controversy, I'll put it that way, let's put it in mildly, I would say, uh, in France. Uh, but there is no, there is nothing really that Deschamps has done which taints him by association. It, it was an alliance of interests, it was the way it was, and Deschamps is a very, he's a very good diplomat, he's somebody, he's not somebody who wears his heart on his sleeve. He's always very prudent in his pronouncements, um, is very cautious, always has been, tends to have, um, we, we, we talk about him very often as um, a tap, which when you open is only lukewarm water coming out of it. Um, neither icy nor uh, burning hot, um, which is enough. So he carries on. And he never, I think, put himself in a situation where he could be seen to be ingratiated uh, and have a debt towards the old regime. So I don't think he's affected by what's happening in the French uh, uh, French Football Federation, the FFF. Just the same way that uh, if I take an example in rugby, Fabien Galtier is not really affected by what's happening, what's happened with Bernard Laporte. So he's been untouched by the controversy so far. And uh, so things carry on as per usual, as you know, the, it, it's true that it's quite extraordinary to think that he he took over in 2012. That's a long time. And the way it's going, he could challenge, I think, for the longest reign of a French national team manager, which is quite extraordinary in this day and age. But it's a measure of his success. It's the measure of uh, uh, his understanding of um, what makes the French team um, work. And um, even people who have a lot to say about the kind of football that he promotes, and I include myself in those, will have to simply accept, if albeit begrudgingly, that at the moment, he certainly is the man for the position. Yeah, and as for the squad itself, so the retirements include Hugo Lloris, of course, the uh, yes. World Cup winning goalkeeper, Raphael Varane, and Karim Benzema, who wasn't always part of the picture during Deschamps' mm. reign, and also for, no. for, reasons <laughs> not, for reasons not related to football either, interestingly No, not enough, really, well. no. <laughs> but, um, you know, what you said earlier was kind of interesting, because I would have thought with the depth that France have, and it's probably the envy of every country in the world, certainly of Ireland anyway, given uh, where we currently are, um, I would have thought it was a situation of sort of more of the same over the next uh, over the next cycle in this group. But you're uh, sort of suggesting that it's uh, maybe tactically it might be the same, but a lot of personalities have gone out of this squad. Yeah, and, and very important personalities. I mean, Hugo Lloris was an absolute, I mean, was a magnificent servant of the French national team. I know people have criticised him for some of his performances, but in, in the dressing room, uh, as a symbol of that team, he's been absolutely stupendous. And I think he's actually been stupendous on the field actually many times as he was during the world cup by the way rafael varan is one that we're going to miss an awful lot um pure class pure elegance football intelligence still very very young but unfortunately too fragile a body perhaps um to be able to bear the demands of being a starter with manchester united and a starter with the french national team but 
it would be greatly missed. And the other thing, I mean, don't forget Steve Mandanda, who was a Goloris number two for a long time, who was also one of the rocks of Didier Deschamps, um, um, you know, tenure. And as to Karim Benzema, of course, he was out in the wilderness for quite a while after the situation created by the famous Valbuena, or infamous, I should say, Valbuena video incident. Um, people can read about it. But when he came back, he was superb. And even, you know, when you think about the complete uh, and utter shambles that was Euro 2020 for France and the way France went out uh, to Switzerland, um, he was superb in the tournament. And the fact that he was not available for the World Cup was one of the, 2022 that is, is one of the many things that made people think before the tournament, you know, we're not going to go anywhere. And and the way in which actually this is ending, Karim Benzema's relationship with Le Bleu is, mm, leaves a little bit of a bitter taste because there are now people and there are now doubts about the fact that um, his health or his physical condition were not good enough to uh, enable him to play in Qatar and maybe actually, you know, he could have gone. And um, so that leaves a bit of taste in the mouth. So we're talking about four very, very big players and uh, which you don't replace like this from, you know, from one day to the next. Uh, if I look at the, uh, and actually when you listen to um, uh, Didier Deschamps press conference after we announced his, his list, um, he, he very much explained that this was um, a work in progress and that what we saw now was not necessarily what we would be seeing in two months' time in terms of the players who had been chosen. And I'm thinking of uh, the, the keepers, for example, Alfonso Areola, Mike Mignon, Brice Samba. Brice Samba, I think, is somebody that whom he would like to, to, you know, to try to try out, like he would like to try at Albon Lafont as well at some point in the near future. Uh, but there is a, these are very big boots to fill. Uh, who to go with uh, in, in terms of a, a central defensive pairing, uh, knowing that Presnel Kimpembe, of course, is still still injured. You see Wesley Fofana coming in. Well, have a look at the season that Wesley Fofana has had with Chelsea. Basically, he hasn't had a season. And also, he doesn't play in the same system. He plays in the three at the back, not the four at the back, like Deschamps has always or nearly always uh, chosen to, uh, to, to, to field. Um, you carry on. I mean, you're thinking, okay, William Saliba, maybe, okay, finally. Saliba, whom he didn't really trust beforehand. I think the last time Saliba played for the French, he was hooked after 45 minutes. Uh, okay, Dayoto Pamecano, wonderful player. We know that, but somewhat inconsistent. I mean, when you look at it, you look at the back, and I'm probably giving you reasons to hope for Ireland here. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not seeing a settled back four. And it's probably the way, I mean, we will obviously we'll see what he does against the Netherlands, but normally it's 4-3-3 or a, a, a variation of. Um, and I can't really see how it's you know going to work. And the thing as well, Eduardo Cavaminga, who's a player I absolutely love, is going to be selected as a left, left back. back. Yeah, strange. That's it's beyond strange. Uh, I think Eduardo Cavaminga can become one of the truly great midfielders of the next 10 years but it would be nice if he were to be played in his actual position i'm sure he can do a great job as left back and actually in fact he has done that in 
several occasions in the past, but that's not where he can really radiate because he can do that. He can be one of those players, a bit like a Jude Bellingham, uh, who who has this presence all over the field, is both destructive and creative, and has a fantastic reading of the game. Well, that's not exactly what you ask from a left back, is it? So, and you carry on, and you think you look at the at the midfield, and I'm not totally convinced by that midfield. Um, like Chouamini is fantastic, absolutely love him to bits, but why not? put him with Kavaminga, and also he's short of competition. Um, then we've got Jordan Verretou. No offense to Jordan, but honestly, he's not that kind of level. I don't think that anybody would disagree with me. Uh, Kefren Turam has had a good, great season with OGC Nice, but uh, he's also untested at this level. It might be his first cap or his second cap. Adrien Rabiot, well, um, is what he is, and has shown signs that he was improving at the World Cup and might be actually the fulcrum of that midfield. But it's still very much a, a moving feast, isn't it? And um, the only place where I think that, okay, yes, France is terrifying, is an attack. Because yes, there is an awful lot of potential there. Uh, and it just it doesn't just stop at um, Kylian Mbappe and, and, and Antoine Griezmann. Uh, the others who are behind, uh, I mean, uh, Colomwani showed at the World Cup what he can do. I think Marcus Turam is still, I mean, is also great talent. Kingsley Coman is a beautiful player. Um, Olivier Giroud is still there. Um, yeah, because I wanted to ask you about him because I was surprised, you know, he's 36. Um, I would have thought he's already got a World Cup winner's medal. He's just broken the France goal scoring record during the tournament. What yeah. else was there? What else was there to achieve as a, as an international forward? And yet, I kind of see maybe not logic from Giroud's point of view, but from Deshaun's point of view, Giroud and Mbappe seem to suit each other on the pitch. Maybe they're, I don't know what their relationship is like. It seems a little bit cordial rather than close in the way that Benzema and Mbappe sort of got on on a friendship level. However, it seemed on the pitch, Giroud gets the best out of Mbappe. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, completely, because he's he's the focal point. He's the uh, the controlling tower, as we say in French, the tour de control, who can be used. And he's very good playing in uh, uh, first touch as well and deviating the ball. And which for with, with players who are as, as imaginative and as Antoine Griezmann and, and Kylian Mbappe is 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 perfect. Uh, as far as Giroud is concerned, uh, in his mind, he wants to carry on as long as he can at the highest level. Uh, that's always, you know, you're talking about a young 36 player, 36 year old player. That's the thing, you know, there are some very old 30 years old, uh, like when Rooney was very old when he was 30, because he'd yeah. been playing nonstop since he was 16 and a half, basically. Olivier Giroud, just like Didier Drogba, is somebody who only started to play at the very highest level when he was 24, 25. Before that, he was playing in the lower divisions, lower leagues. And um, I mean, yeah, he only came out of the amateur ranks quite late compared to other players. So he's had 10, 11 years at the top. That's not an awful lot, um, especially for a player of his kind who doesn't really rely on his speed. I mean, he's never been the quickest, has he? Uh, but he relies on, on, again, his intelligence, his prowess in the air, his physicality, and this beautifully delicate touch that he has when he receives the ball and you know can caress it with the outside of his foot, whichever direction he wants the, the ball to take. So he's quite a young, um, you know, 36-year-old. So it's not exactly that surprising. And given his record as well, I mean, what did he do in the World Cup that makes you, that would convince you that he should stop playing international football? Absolutely nothing. 
actually, in fact, quite the opposite thing. He still got a lot to give, even if it's as a, as a plan B, which he has often been. So uh, to me, there's no surprise. And also Deschamps, having lost so many players of great experience on whom he knew he could rely, uh, he doesn't want to lose yet another one. And, um, and you know, you look through the team and you're thinking, there aren't that many players in there who have had a place in the French team, a settled place in the French team for a long time. I would say Antoine Griezmann is definitely one of them, who I think in terms of his contribution to the French national team, I think only, only Kylian Mbappé and Giroud in his own way can compare in terms of what he's brought. I think there's actually a case to be made to say that Antoine Griezmann is probably the outstanding French player of the last 10 years with the national team. So he's got, he's got that. He's got Giroud. And that's about it. You know, Kylian Mbappé is, is Kylian Mbappé is this extraordinary player, but who is not, you know, genuinely a leader, um, be it in the dressing room or on the field of play. But on the other hand, he's the guy that makes things happen and becomes a leader by what he can achieve on the pitch, which is what he did against Argentina and against many other opponents. So it makes complete sense for, for Deschamps to carry on relying on a player like Olivier Giroud. And interestingly, you say uh, Mbappe's leadership credentials there are a little bit under question because yeah. I, I was reading beforehand that there's actually talk and Deschamps has been talking him up as a potential captain. And I don't know whether this is a definite thing that we're going to see against the Netherlands and, and Ireland, but is he is is that is there that speculation that Mbappe in a way maybe that Messi was made captain of Argentina or Ronaldo of Portugal that the star player is sort of made captain and I don't know maybe it's you know uh, when you if you follow English football a lot the idea of what a captain is supposed to be is overblown That's it. more than here in Ireland or in France or wherever but I don't know what do you think absolutely absolutely I think that the, the 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 captain's role in France is just not the same as it is in other countries if you think about yes about about Ireland, you think about England. Um, even if you think about Italy, I would think like Fabio Cannavaro, for example, for the 2006 World Cup winning team. Um, yes, of course, it's an important role, but it is not uh, weighted with the same expectations, perhaps as it is elsewhere. Um, and then, um, if you think about uh, the way Mbappe goes about his business. Um, in a way, making him captain is not uh, necessarily uh, seeing in him the qualities that make a great captain. Is perhaps more of a, a tool to push him a little bit further to see if he can give something extra. If perhaps wearing the armband, which he will be very proud to wear, um, is perhaps um, encouraging him to contribute more to the team which he can certainly do at times, certainly defensively, because he contributes almost nothing. <laughs> Let's be fair about that. Um, so maybe it's a case of telling Kylian, you know, it's your team. And um, you, you lead it from the front, you know, sometimes for your own performances, but you can go beyond that. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go much further than this when, as far as the captain's role is concerned. I mean, there have been some iconic captains of the French national team. Michel Platini definitely has been one of them. Uh, you could say that Zidane has been one, even though in terms of personality, he was not what you would think of as captain material. Deschamps um, himself, probably. Deschamps, but Deschamps is a Deschamps is a proper and was a proper captain. Um, Deschamps has been a captain throughout all his life in every single team that he's played in. Um, 
I think he he was captain of uh, FC Nantes um, when he was 19 years of age. And the team of which he was the captain had some established internationals there, but he had immediately been identified as captain material. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily something that people would say of Kian Bappe. Example. Yeah, and uh, of course, Paul Pogba won't be involved in this uh, particular international break. So yeah. he's, one, he's one player Ireland aren't going to worry about. But again, at the same time, they got to a World Cup final without him, and uh, as talented as he is. But I, I'd be interested to get your perspective on him because there's a reputation he has in the Premier League of being someone who flatters to deceive. Yet I get the impression maybe he's more appreciated, certainly in Italy, up to maybe recently, and certainly in France, given what he was involved he's, in in 2018. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think with, with, with France, apart from, you know, this awful game he had against Switzerland in, in, in the Euro, um, which is probably something that has changed some of the, of the part of his image, perhaps, with the French public. Um, he's always been superb with France. Um, he's always given with France what people have been expecting from him at club level and got... Um, when he was at Juve, certainly, before he came back to Manchester United, he was superb. But then since then, um, to be honest, he's more or less disappeared. And the problem, the biggest problem, people talk about his attitude and the pitch and so forth. For me, the biggest problem is not that. The problem is his body. The problem is that this player is never fit. And every time he gets back to full fitness, he gets injured again. And that is coming to an age when you're thinking, you know, we've got to think that the great Paul Pogba that we all hoped to see at one point, we'll never see him. We will not, um, because there will always be a problem. There was talk in France at one stage, even up to a few days ago, that because he's back after a fashion uh, playing, when he's on time for trading sessions, that is, <laughs> um, uh, he could have a chance to get back in the in, in the group. Uh, Deschamps really likes him. And... Paul Pogba loves playing with, with Le Bleu in. I think you can see it actually when he puts that shirt on. And, but that's not the case. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily think that is going to be the case for a long time. Similarly, uh, N'Golo Kante is very close to coming back. He could be playing for, um, you know, I, to be honest, I'm saying that, but it is being broadcast later. So I've got to be very careful. N'Golo Kante is back with Chelsea, back in training, and an Angolo Kante who is anywhere near the level he was at in 2018 is a given starter uh, in the French national team. So, which is why I'm saying this is this is an odd moment. It's a moment of transition. We knew it was going to be because some players were were retiring. Uh, we knew because of the timing as well when this international window um, is is happening, and also because there are quite a lot of players who are who will come back. Uh, and and therefore will question you know the, the the status quo at the moment. I mean, what we see uh, the uh, that list I think will be very very different when the next international window comes. Yeah, and uh, in regards to the group, of course, uh, it's Ireland, it's France, Netherlands, Greece, Gibraltar. Obviously, the Dutch are the first on the twenty fourth of March before um, the French come to Dublin uh, yeah. on Monday of uh, the following week. And um, just in regards to how it's being perceived, I mean, I, I, would I be right in imagining that all the focus is on this Dutch game in terms of the the interest levels from the public, and that Ireland is something of an afterthought because we're not as well known in terms of our players as we were. Maybe well, you times. say that 
but there's a great deal of history between the two sides, isn't there? Yeah, so, there's one, a little a little hand, I think, <laughs> needs to be mentioned. Yeah, well, that, that's more than that. I mean, it's, it goes back a long time. I mean, I'm older than you are, but I, with Ireland, there's there've been a few things in the past and uh, a few forgettable and a few unforgettable games. And sometimes it depends which point of view you speak from uh, to decide whether they're forgettable or unforgettable. Um, I would say that the the focus at the moment is, is very much on the Dutch game, and that um, it's it's one match at a time, literally in terms of the media attention. People are not projecting themselves on the Irish game at all. I think it's more a question of we're going to meet an, a, a Dutch team that um, I wouldn't say we fear, but we are wary of. We know they can be a right. I mean, they would be a very difficult opponent. We don't quite know where we are. Where we stand and i think that's that's why people are not projecting themselves beyond this first game it's because we 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 arrive the situation with players i mean three uncapped players who might well play a role in that game um four players having retired since the world cup um loads of demands placed also on on top players within the group because of the very strange calendar we've got so we don't know where we are we don't know where we are we are exactly in the same situation um, we were in when we arrived in Qatar, where honestly nobody had any idea how good or how bad or how average the French were going to be. We had no idea. Uh, we have no points of comparison. And this is very much where we are now. So we're not projecting ourselves to the Irish game. This will come in due course, but for the time being, it's all about the Dutch. Yeah, and obviously you've been contributing to, to Irish media over a long period of time as well. So I wonder, um, from the little bit, little tidbits you've heard over over time, do you have a perspective on Stephen Kenny's Ireland, or is there much, or even in France, is there much known about any of the players we have currently? No, honestly, I think people, I mean, uh, people have lost lost track of Ireland a little bit, and um, and and are not really aware of what's been going on. And I think if you were to ask people, even people who are involved in the game. Uh, they would say, oh, Ireland, ooh, they've gone through a few problems, haven't they? And they would stick at that. <laughs> they wouldn't go in great detail. I think people are aware of the fact that perhaps Ireland doesn't quite have the same reservoir of players that it used to have and which we're used to. Um, they will be aware of the problems they have been with um, the Federation, uh, succession of coaches and so forth. But to be honest, um, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that, it has receded in our perception of, of European football. So, uh, which, by the way, might play to Ireland's advantage because people are not expecting them to do much against the French. This French team, again, is in transition. It's the right time to take it on. Yeah, and another thing I was actually going to ask you about, and um, because it was something that was always talked about with the 1998 team, was this whole idea of them being a unifying force uh, for for French society. Obviously, that turned out to be an illusion at the time. I think from documentaries that have come out and everything that's been spoken about, and I get the sense maybe when those conversations are happening now, people don't talk about the national team in that way anymore, and it's not part of that conversation. Or is that is that is that the case, or are they uh... is it still talked about in that way? I, I think anyway, the, the discourse was uh, very much a discourse of people were having abroad and not in France. Uh, and, and, and I've always maintained that it was a false discourse. I've said it for a very long time, and I'll say it again, uh, because it is based on a completely wrong perspective on what is the history of the French national team, which has always been a multi-ethnic, multinational team, always, since the 1930s, the only European team of this kind. So. 
when people were picking on the fact that, uh, oh, look at that, you've got people from coming from all sorts of uh, backgrounds, heritage, and so forth, I would ask, also, yeah, but it's always been like this for us. Look at the Platini team of the 1980s. Look at it. You know, it's the only European team which has got players of Caribbean, African uh, um, heritage. Some of them actually born in Africa, like Jean Tigana was born in Mali. Uh, West Indian, uh, you, you carry on, Spanish, Italian, Polish. It's always been like that. And so the debate and the discourse is for me something that has been manufactured from outside because people suddenly we win. People are wondering, oh, look at that, they won and, and they are like that. Well, we've always been like that. It's like, get used to it, guys. And it's true that um, that discourse, in fact, in, in, in France, uh, there, have, there have been some pretty nasty um, uh, com comments about this coming from the extreme right. Let's say it as it is, uh, bemoaning the fact that the French national team seems to have a lot of players, notably of, of African heritage, even though they're probably born in uh, Paris. And uh, as I actually uh, showed, I mean, um, during the last World Cup, it, some people came up with that, um, with a photograph of the French national team and saying, look at where they all come from. And I said, well, there's one thing they have all in common. Every single one was born in France. But some people have got a problem realizing the fact that you can be French and black and or French and Muslim, you know. And uh, so I won't get drawn into that because it really annoys me. Because <laughs> yeah. because for me that's that's actually one of the great strengths of, of French football and one of the things that our football can be genuinely proud of is that it has been um, a uh, an integrated team from very very early on. I said from the 1930s onwards, and um, we didn't wait until the 1980s to have a black player in our ranks. My English friends. Yeah, and uh, in regards to the eleven and the, that will play against Ireland, let's let's assume that there's no injuries against the Dutch. And in the build up to uh, this international break uh, after this weekend, what what eleven would you expect uh, to line ah. up? Well, uh... <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. I think Mike Mignon in goal. Okay, I'm looking at the twenty three right now. Uh... I think uh, Benjamin Pavar on the right, um, Saliba and Upamecano, or Konate and Upamecano in, in the middle, Theo Hernandez on the left, uh, midfield definitely Chouameni and Rabio, with perhaps Griezmann in a fake uh, sort of a number eight. And up front, it could be, I mean, um, obviously, um, Kylian Mbappe will be there. I would hope Kingsley Common is there too. And perhaps Colomwani on the other flank because he was absolutely superb in that role. So that's a possibility. But to be honest, at the moment, it's very much up in the air. And a lot might depend, uh, in fact, of what happens against the, the Dutch when we play them in uh, in Saint-Denis. Of course. And uh, I suppose finally, Philippe, are we going to see you in Dublin for uh, on, on Monday, Monday week? You're coming, I presume? Uh, I will not be coming on Monday week because I will have to be traveling elsewhere. I will be following the game. I'm sure, but I, I will be coming to Dublin very soon in any case. Oh, good. Okay, fair enough. We'll, uh, we'll, be, we'll be looking forward to that, of course. But uh, anyway, uh, Philippe, thanks a million for taking the time. Quite a lot there in that conversation, obviously, to, to pick through. And uh, I don't know, you've given me a little bit of hope uh, from an Irish perspective, <laughs> so which is a uh, hope is always a dangerous thing, as they say. So we, we'll, see, we'll see how we get on. But thanks very okay. much. Okay, my pleasure. 
All right, that was football journalist Philippe O'Claire on France and perhaps giving Ireland fans a little bit of hope, uh, given that uh, not all is rosy uh, within the French camp, it seems. But uh, anyway, let's turn our attention to the SSE Electricity League with action across the men's Premier Division, First Division and Women's Premier. Uh, Graham Gartland, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Ralph? Not too bad at all. Um, actually, before we get on to the domestic action, uh, I want to get your thoughts on Ireland, obviously, the Latvia game on Wednesday and then... Uh, next Monday, it's the big one against France. But um, in terms of how you would use the Latvia game and then your thoughts on the daunting task that awaits uh, um, in, in regards to France, what are your thoughts on it at the moment? I think you probably use the first 60 minutes to, to work on stuff that you're going to roll into the France game. The France game is more is more important uh, than the Latvia game, obviously. So you have to use that to see, can we implement things that, we can then bring into the France game. So if it is working on counter-attacks or working on certain things that mightn't come up as much and it might frustrate the fans that we let Latvia have some of the ball here, but that's the way it goes. You're preparing for a bigger fish to fry um, again going into the weekend. So things like that, that you just ask for sort of understanding and patience from, from the fans from that point of view, but then work on how you can hurt France or how you can break them down but can you implement that some of that in the Latvia game and build confidence from that and build a bit of momentum we've seen how important momentum is in sports so can you build a little bit of that get minutes into players that probably aren't getting enough minutes the likes of uh, Nathan Collins Matt Doherty example um, lads that might need a bit minutes in their legs as well to just get their eye in uh, so can can it be used for that as well so yeah I I think there has to be a level of understanding around the game as well, but you obviously want to have a positive result to go into the France game. Yeah, and in regards to both games, obviously Evan Ferguson, and you know we've talked about him a lot on this podcast, and he was brilliant at the weekend for Brighton against Grimsby in the FA Cup, a couple of goals, especially the first one, the uh, quality of the touch and everything else. But you know, as a defender, if you're looking at it from a France point of view and how Ireland can hurt them, and they won't get a lot of the ball, uh, in terms of what, uh, who complements Ferguson best in terms of bringing out the best of his game, and also, you know, as a, from your experience as a centre half, what you would fear. Um, who do you think should partner him? Um, if if they go with a two front, you'd you you'd probably go with Obafemi, um, because Evan Evan is really good at holding the ball up and linking the play, and then he's a threat from crosses. But you need to probably somebody that's going to run beyond them. Uh, I'm not saying he's not quick, he is, and he can do that role himself, but if Obafemi is running into channels and then you're setting it back for crosses, Evan can main, mainly plant himself in the box, and he he is really good in between the posts as well. He has a good presence about him. A um, bit like Harry Kane in that way, that he has that presence, he can hold the ball up, he can bring players into the game, and on top of that, he can finish. You don't really want them running channels and being out in them wide areas. You want them in the middle of the goal and being a being effective in that sense. So I'll probably go out with Femi from Burnley, who's who's obviously joined Burnley and done really well. So that's who I'd like to go and see. Whether you go with two up front against France in, in a in a 3 5 2, I'm I'm not sure. He might play Evan up by himself and play like two midfielders in behind them. And if they are going to do that and he does drop into play, then two midfielders need to run beyond um, whether it's Jamie McGrath or Jason Knight or Will Smallbone. We, we I always think you need players to stretch the game at certain times to allow your midfielders to play or to allow, if the centre-forward does drop in, he has to be dropping into space. That space is made by players running beyond and deepening a back line. 
So um, if you are going with two, I'd probably go all with him. Okay, um, we're going to turn our attention now, obviously, to the SSE Electricity League and in the Premier Division. Last Thursday, the Loud Derby took place and Drody United lost 1-0 at home to Dundalk, Connor Malley with the goal. And I have to say, across the weekend as well, there were some brilliant goals scored. I think in, in most of the fixtures, there, there were a few cracking goals. And then Cork City on Friday night lost 2-0 at home to Shelburne. Um, Shamrock Rovers and St. Pat's, again, um, Shamrock Rovers still waiting for a win and they shared the points there, two-all draw. Other than the penalty, as I said, a lot of cracking goals scored and uh, Jack Burns won is certainly one to watch. Richie Towles was a great finish and Jake Mulraney's as well. And uh, Then Bowes beat uh, UCD 2-1 coming from behind with um, goals from Paddy Kirk and Ali Coote. And then Derry City and Sligo Rovers couldn't be separate and that was 1-1 draw with uh, Kieran Call scoring an equaliser from a set piece. Max Matt had scored earlier on and that's the game we're going to talk about first because uh, you were on uh, you were on TV duty, Graham, for, uh, for that one. Um, and the first thing, I suppose, and it's something that was touched on last year, uh, as much as Derry had a brilliant season, their home form is something that probably they would need to improve on if they're really going to push. And we're presuming Shamrock Rovers come back into it at some point or whether Bowes can stay the course, that their home form needs to needs to be upped a little bit. The pitch seems to be a real factor there. And I mean, you got to see it up close. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, I, th- I, th- I think Rory Higgins won't make excuses for it because it gives the players a new. But they won 10 games away from home last season. They only won eight at home. Normally, when you associate dirty, it was always the home form because it wasn't an easy place to go. We were talking about it uh, off air before the game that, you know, coming to dirty years ago, you just shook hands on the draw straight away because they, it was such a tough place to go to get a result. Um, I think teams are giving them a lot of respect. As you've seen that with Sligo, they got a lot of bodies back behind the ball. They worked really hard. Um, they were really well organised. They looked a threat on the counter-attack at times. Hartman, Will Fitzgerald, I thought, had a, had a fantastic game as well. Um, but the pitch does, doesn't does help them. Um, it slows the game down a bit. And you've seen some of the injuries as well that was caused where, I think it was Brand. Branner, the, the right uh, back. Yeah, Branner Falcon, the, the cycle Falcon, right back. Yeah, yeah. He's just, he, he, there's, there's just no giving it. Um, these Astros need to be really watered before people play on them. And, and it's not Derry's fault um, in that sense, but both them and Dundalk need to get out, get out and water the pitches so it becomes probably safer for players to play on and, and better on the eye for people watching. Um, Derry do need... The, the best thing about Derry at the moment is they're missing so many vital players and they're still getting all decent results. They're still up at second in the league. When they get the likes of Duffy back, obviously Conley's going to be a miss, but they get Duffy, Dunnigan, um, Colin Whelan back as well, who's going to be a big signing for them because I do think McGonagall, McGonagall needs a bit of help up there. Um, McInniff came on and, and Brandon Cadner came on and they made a bit of a difference. They were willing to run beyond McGonagall when McGonagall dropped in. Will Patching is a lovely player and he has moments in the game where you think it's great, but he always wants to come towards the ball. He always wants to be on the ball. He wants the ball to feet. When McGonagall's, when McAniff came on and Kavanagh came on, they just brought an energy to them that they, they stretched the back line. They unsettled Sligo's defence and ran beyond them. Um, there was some marvellous skill in the game from Harrington, from Will Fitzgerald, from Will Patching, but the, there was a bit of lack of end product from Derry um, and I think they only had two shots on target in the game and when you're thinking there's a team pushing to win a league title at home you'd expect them to have a little bit more than that and I think Rory himself would expect them to have a little bit more than that and show that desire they were 
they were in the ascendancy and they scored a goal and then the ref disallowed it and brought it back because uh, he, he didn't think there was a, a, an advantage. Just as Sligo got a nick on the ball, it bounced to McGonagall, McGonagall finishes and the ref brings it back and he books John Martin. And I think that just took the wind out of sails a little bit and Sligo got, oh, we got away with them one day and they lifted the game from then on and they were probably the better team going in towards half-time. It was only when... I'd say McAniff and Brandon Kavanagh came on that Derry looked like they had energy and they could run. Then they score and then it looks like the whole crowd is getting behind them and, and they were pushing for a winner. Albeit, Stoiger had still had the best chance of the second half. Um, Vashtuk should score. He's true on goal. Shane McElhenney pulls up. Doesn't realise he has as much time and he drags the shot wide. Yeah, actually, because I was going to, I had actually noted that uh, a moment where Adriano Real sort of stopped the play. Well, I mean, the play went on, but then he kind of, he brought it back. And Alan Cawley on the commentary wasn't too happy with the way that was handled. Obviously, he he would have thought that, you know, it, the play should have been allowed to go on, uh, you know, and an advantage should have been uh, run. Like, what, what what did you make of that overall situation in terms he, of... He originally played advantage, Raf, because the tackle happens and it goes out to McGonagall. As McGonagall good choice to take his touch beyond Pienacker, Pienacker gets a nick and as soon as Pienacker nicks the ball, the ref blows his whistle but he doesn't let the second bit play out because he nicks it onto McGonagall and it puts it into McGonagall's path for a better shot and if he has it, if he just waits, but because he it nicks off Pienacker he blows the whistle and thinks, oh well that's the advantage gone, uh, McGonagall gets the finish and as he's pulling the trigger he, the whistle's been blown and Pienacker stops but I think if he just had to let it go for an extra second, I think it's a goal for Derry, and he and he and he just and it's a really good refereeing decision, and everybody's praising him for playing advantage. And like I said, that just changed the trajectory of the game a little bit, and it just gave Derry, it gave Sligo that feeling of oh, we've 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 survived one there, we got away with one, and then also Derry just went oh, it, it probably hit them a little bit harder. Matten then subsequently makes a handball on the halfway line. They're looking for it. He gets taken off at half time. Um, because I think John Russell was worried he probably would have been sent off. Yeah, um, let's listen to John Russell actually because he was speaking to. Uh, to yeah, yeah, no, no, you're very, you're very good at these segues. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'll, uh, yeah, John Russell, Sligo Rovers manager, was speaking afterwards to RT Sports, so let's have a listen to that. Congratulations, uh, well deserved point. It was a bit of a smash and grab to begin with, wasn't it? Yeah, no, I felt we played well tonight. I um, mean, it was going to be difficult coming up here. We weathered the storm first 15, 20 minutes, and then we scored an, out, an outstanding goal. Um, and that's what we're capable of. And we've shown that this season. Um, and then second half, we had to dig deep. A lot of players came off injured. We had to change two right backs, so we'd have to assess them. Uh, a few tired bodies towards the end, and then we concede from a set play. But for me, we had the best chance of the game then when Bogdan went through. And if he finishes that, you probably hold out and get three points. But it's a good thing to be coming away here disappointed after the draw. Hold on. Cheers, thank you. Right, so that is Sligo Rovers manager John Russell speaking to RT soccer correspondent Tony O'Donoghue after the game. And uh, just on Sligo, actually, um, before we before we move on, uh, you know, they've shown resilience a couple of times this season now because they, they were, of course, uh, down to 10 men for about 70 minutes. And actually, coincidentally, John Mann, who was sent off that day, and they managed to beat Pats and it's hard to put a finger on what their season is going to look like. It, there's a sense they're just going to be, they're going to be in that mid table, but do you see potential there for them to push on into that sort of top four mix? I think, the, I think the likes of Hartman and Will Fitzgerald are exciting for them. And I think Matt, gives them a presence in the front line. Um, the defense, when they get back and respect teams and, and they give teams 
that you, in terms of they went to Derry and they set out their stall that they were going to catch them on the counter attack and play. You looked really hard to beat and difficult to break down. The issue I seen even going into the game against them when they tried to play an open game against Cork, they probably got caught out and they were two 0 down to Cork. But again, they showed a lot of resilience, a lot of togetherness to come back against Cork and get a two all draw. So it it's all down to their approach to the game. Are they going to be a team that sits in and defends and becomes difficult to beat? And, and then hopefully the front three players of Fitzgerald, Hartman and Matt, they get them goals and nick them. Or are they going to try and dominate possession of the ball? They have to respect every opposition, but it seems to me that they're, they're probably better suited to being a counter-attacking team at this moment in time. Uh, in fairness, they probably were easy to play against under a previous under the previous manager. Um, I watched them play a few times, and I thought he basically just went out and said, "Right, we're going to have the ball, and then you have the ball," and became a free-flowing game. But when you come up against teams that have better quality, you end up losing them games. Um, I think John Russell's been a bit more pragmatic about it because obviously he was there under Liam Buckley as well and said, you know what, let's make ourselves a little bit more difficult to beat at times, get bodies behind the ball. Greg Bulger was fantastic at that on Friday night, made sure that everybody got behind the ball, done their job. Like you said, Will Fitzgerald ends up right back. Um, Morahan was in there for a while as well. They went through it. Um, Carlo Sullivan came on and every one of them done their job for the team and there was a real togetherness about them. And in fairness, they deserve the draw on the day. So fair play to John Russell. He's installed a bit of steel, a bit of energy to them as well, a bit of togetherness. And 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 it's invariably it's getting them good results. Yeah, and Shamrock Rovers, as I said, still waiting for first win of the season. Now they haven't been they've only been beaten the once uh, against Derry City and what was a really good game. Now the two two draw with Pats, the disappointment for them will be they would they conceded a, another late equalizer, albeit the earlier late equalizers they conceded were when they were either down a man or down uh, or down two players after sending off sending off earlier in the season. Um we're sixth of the way into the season now. At what point does uh, does it become a little bit of a concern from Stephen Bradley's point of view in terms of maybe he looking at making tweaks to maybe the system or not so much personnel at this stage of the season, but maybe making significant tweaks to just try and unlock it? Or is patience the key in this situation? Yeah. I, like I said to you, I think if, if teams were pulling away and playing unbelievably well, I think it'd be more of a worry. I think... Stevens looked at the performances and said, right, there's elements of all the performances that have been good. Um, he touched on it not being rootless enough against uh, Drogheda. He touched on um, the decision-making at times in certain games. But, like, uh, but again, the performances have been good. The, 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 the sole defeat came against Derry, which was probably the best performance. So it's just been sort of unpredictable season for Rovers because you're so used to when they go one nil up, they just strangle teams. The fact that teams are coming back against them um, is something that Stephen probably has to look at. But like you said, nobody's really pulling away. They're they aren't pulling up trees neither. And that would be the that would be the worry if if a team was pulling away that you think, right, the performances aren't good. We're not getting the results on top of that. The performances have been good. They've got quality players who have experience. And like you said, I said this, I think the first time we done this about a month ago, Raf. everybody's so quick to judge teams at this point of the season, good and bad. But this, the league doesn't settle down for 10, 10 games. And then you see all the suspensions and you see all the injuries kick in and you see 
players who the first five games they're all flying because they've had a good preseason behind them. They're eating right. Let's see the ones who are doing that 15 games in and 20 games in. And, and that's where the professionalism of the players and the top teams will come through because they generally look after themselves. But it'll be interesting to see how it goes. I think the disappointing thing for Stephen would be that they're giving up leads, which is not something that they do. And that, but there's an intensity to them when, they get, when the game draws level that I think he'd probably be looking for when, they get, when they're winning the games to make sure that they just see them out and really strangle teams and stand on their throat when they're in uh, winning positions. But do you know what? For all you, for all you can be critical of Rover from that point of view, every other team now is having a go because they know what's at stake and they know what, what like you said, they know what Rovers are trying to achieve and most teams are going all out to stop that. And that that's something that you just have to deal with. And, and that's the way football is at times. You know? Yeah, and then on the other side of the equation, of course, Pats as well, under pressure after three defeats in a row, and especially the damaging one at Dundalk, uh, and also in a way the where they where they lost up uh, up in Sligo with a man advantage for 70 minutes. This was a huge result for them because there was a lot of pressure being piled on Tim Clancy. Yeah, there was a lot of talk. There was a lot of unrest around it, just the different moments. But in fairness, like for the team to come back at Halle after going 2-1 down with such a good goal from Jack Bourne, it shows that there is a bit of togetherness in the team and it's a wonderful finish from Moraney. He actually he, he competes for the header with Gannon first and Gannon drops back into a wing-back position. But Moraney just stays in that inside left position and he's in between, I think it's Dan Cleary and, and Gannon, and neither know who to go with. The left back is coming, or the left wing back is coming onto the scene, but then Moraine, he finds himself in that little pocket. I think Gary O'Neill is the one that's trying to get over to stop him. And he bends a lovely shot into the far corner, dips right at the post, and it's a brilliant finish. And, and Moraine's a player that's going to have to step up for Pats this year. Like um, I would have seen him over in Scotland. He was at Inverness, and then he went to Hearts before going to America, and he has bags of potential. It's just about delivering on that and becoming a big player for St. Pat's. Yeah, and you watched the loud derby as well on the Thursday, um, Dundalk. Um, I think it seems like Drada had the better of the game, but like Dundalk seemed to be picking up a nice bit of momentum now. They're not they're win- not winning all the time, but they're they're chipping away at points yeah. in a way that Drada has been doing as well. Yeah, I, I think Drada, especially second half, I think Drada were probably the better team. You get galvanised again, you go a goal down and there's a big push, especially at open. Uh, I, I still call it United Park. I don't know what's the name of it now. Uh, Weavers Park now. Weavers Park. There you go. Thanks. That's why you're doing the presenting job. And <laughs> it's a really good goal. I think the winger for Dundalk does really well, checks inside, and he looks dangerous, really quick feet. And O'Malley just opens up his body and bends into the far corner. I think Drott would be disappointed because he had chances at the end. And obviously, the penalty is a big one. Draper steps up. He's only a young boy. Um, and he just opens up his body and tries to place in the far corner. Uh, keeper makes a good save. But I think that'd be disappointing is that for all the pressure dropped to have, they didn't score on the night. Uh, it was a really well contested game. Probably wasn't, you know, a great game of football. It wasn't one for the purest, but dropped it sort of made a bit of a battle and, and they were able to run and get energy up and Draper holds the ball up well. They get a lot of bodies around them. Then Marky is very good. He does really well to get the penalty. I just think they'd be disappointed he didn't get something out of the game because they deserve something out of the game. 
Yeah, whereas uh, Shelburne did get something out of the game down in Cork. And it's interesting looking at their defensive record. They have the joint best defensive record at this stage. Only three conceded. Uh, yeah, with yeah with Derry. And then Cork, uh, in contrast, have scored seven more goals than Shells, but have conceded 12. So it probably was telling in the game. Shells just, and Damien Duff's Shells just seem really organised. Yeah, they're, they're really pragmatic. I, th- I think they've missed Boyd because, and, and I think what Damien... Looking at what Damien's done, he's made them really hard to beat, really hard to break down. Um, they probably lack a cutting edge at the moment in the forward play with Boyd not being available. And that's just purely down to injuries. Would he like to bring in reinforcements in that area? Probably. He's never going to come out and say it. Evan Caffrey's gone up there, who's played all last year as a midfielder for UCD. So he's never going to come out and say it because that that's the way it is. You, you, you work with the... You work, you, you work with you play with the hands you're given, really. Uh, sorry, it took a while to get that out, but um, I think that's what he's doing, and he's made them really pragmatic and difficult to beat. And if you are that way, you'll always get chances in the game, especially like you said with Cork's maybe defensive record. Uh, the first goal, Cork just don't get out of the box quick enough. The ball goes back, they just don't get out of the box quick enough, and ends up being a glancing header from from the, their own centre back that goes in. Second goal is a really well worked goal from Shell's point of view, and Moylan who is in the box and has a bit of cutting edge to him, gets a really good finish. But again, probably not enough pressure from a Cork point of view that Colin Healy might be a bit upset with. But um, they are, they're grinding out results. They're staying in games as long as they can. And when they do get Boyd back or if they do if they do manage to bring in an extra striker or someone at the top end of the pitch come, come the summer, they're in a really good position then because they're building off a really strong base. Yeah, and then at the moment as well, Bohemians are top of the table, five wins from six, so they're on 15 points, three ahead of Derry City. Now, they had to grind out a result uh, against UCD, had to come back, for, come from behind a couple of goals uh, in the second half. Uh, but the, one of the players that is getting plaudits from the start of this season, James McManus, uh, he's been he's done quite well. Like, What have you made of him and, and like his role really in that good. midfield? Really good. He keeps them moving. He allows Coop to get on the ball and drive forward. Um, he does brilliantly well for the second goal. I've watched the back and the ball. The UCD cleared it down to the middle of the pitch and probably, you know, for such a young player to take a touch on it, but he obviously knows where his next pass is straight away. He kills it dead and he knocks it out the uh, out the Kirk. Kirk plays in that lobby and that allows Coote to just run around the front of him and Coote ends up with a brilliant goal, drags her onto his left foot. Um, the biggest praise I can give Bowes here is everything went against them in this game in the first half. He had a missed penalty, but missed by a good bit. Even I was thinking um, with my penalty record, that's a terrible penalty. Yeah, I think but, it left. Um, it looked like it left the ground. I don't know it exactly what. Oh yeah, the yeah, wall behind it. Yeah. Oh yeah. So it was um, yeah, but and then you have a goal disallowed that looks a little bit harsh as well. That it does, like doesn't look like the ball's going to play. So everything that went against them, and I think that would have maybe hurt them a little bit more last season than it did this season. You can see that a lot of goals in the last 20 minutes of the games last season from winning positions. They lost a lot of games last year, even though they were they had taken the lead early. This was the opposite. They're 1-0 down to a really good goal from Bishop from UCD, but they rallied really well. Kirk scores a great goal, cuts in on his right foot, and then Cute steps up. But McManus, again, just allows the, the forward players to go and attack and he gives them that um, security, but he also gives them that freedom, a play that they know that he's going to be in a position that the fullbacks can play through him. He can link the midfielders to the... to the He can link the defence to the strikers and he can meet, he can link the wide players to the wide players so everything can run through him. 
and his game intelligence is really high. So you can tell that, you know, that position just suits him and let, he allows Ali Cook to then go and get involved in the attacking sense of the game. Yeah, and then in the first division, Finn Harps got their first win of the season, winning 1-0 along for Town. Waterford uh, drew 2-2 at Bray Wanderers, Athlone and Treaty United, exact same result. And uh, that was on the Friday night. The the the, um, the other the first two games, of course, were um, on Saturday. And then uh, Wexford beat Kerry FC 2-1. So Kerry keep um, being able to find the net now. It's just now trying to... They have they have had one point, but trying to actually get a first win now is the is the target. And then in the sort of one at the top of the table, Galway United won two nil at Cove Ramblers, uh, five wins from five for Galway, and it looks like well, well, the gap is seven points to Waterford. The way they've started, um, you know, it's it's been brilliant for Galway, but they will probably be mindful of what petered out um in the middle of last season. So it's kind of learning from that, being able to maintain that momentum. Yeah, exactly. Momentum is a massive thing, but. When, when it does get tough, knowing when to dig in and grind out results, most people think you, you win leagues by this free-flowing football and, and it's that, but it's the moments when it gets tough and you look around and you dig in. You might dig out a draw from, you might be one nil down five minutes ago and you dig out a draw and, you, you know, it brings this feeling of, right, we got away with one here, let's make sure it doesn't happen again. So it just gathers and gathers and you build the togetherness through them difficult moments. It's easy to play when everything's going well and everything's flying, but when you look around and you see who's switching the difficult moments, that's what galvanises the team. And um, if they went through that last year and know how to navigate it um, better this year, it, it, it should be telling. Again, the other teams around them aren't exactly setting the world alight neither, so it's it's on Galway to go out and just build up this unsurmountable lead. And, and take the heart out of the other teams around them to go, well, it looks like we're just playing for second in a playoff spot. Um, and, and it's in Galway's hands to do that. They're the, they're the probably biggest budget in the fourth division. Watford will be disappointed. I think they're tuning up and then get a player sent off and then it goes back to two all. So again, from a winning position, they lose and it's great for Bray to come back into it. But I think they'd be disappointed in losing a player and then losing the two goals. Yeah, and then in the women's Premier Division, Athlone Town had a bye week last week, but they uh, and they had lost their their open around game, but they went to Treaty United and won eight nil. So really, the the season really is up and running for them now. P Mount won four nil at Sligo. DLR Waves beat Cork City three nil, and then uh, Sarah Rowe scored her first goal of the season for Bohemians uh, with a one nil victory at Galway United, and also it was a goal where. Um, it was capitalising on a on an errant back pass and then finishing well. And then Shelburne and uh, Shamrock Rovers. Now, this was the big one. There was a lot of focus on Shells as the reigning double champions, Shamrock Rovers as the uh, sort of the new kids on the block uh, coming back into the league after 10 years and having signed a number of high-profile players. One of those, Anya Gorman, scored um, to give Shamrock Rovers the lead. But uh, Jess Stapleton then levelled from a set piece uh, heading in at the far post. Antonio Donahue was at Shelburne versus Shamrock Rovers. Rovers and he was chatting to the Shamrock Rovers manager Collie O'Neill who believes his side is only at about 65% of where they're looking to be. Interview with Shamrock Rovers manager Collie O'Neill after a thrilling draw I'd have to say. Would you think Would you think it was a fair result in the end? Uh, probably in the end yeah it probably was a, a fair result. We probably started off the better and then I suppose towards the end they had a couple of chances so yeah we'll, we'll say it was a fair result overall. There was a, a big roar at the end when uh, Noel Murray had the ball over the line. Did you think it was offside? 
I actually, from the corner of my eye, I saw the flag going up straight away. So I knew, even before she put it in, I saw the flag up. So I was, yeah, it was calm. It was okay. What was it like getting ready for, for this game? Because there was a lot of build-up about it. Obviously, you've had to bring together a new team. Many of them, six of them started, actually, that came from Shelburne. Was that a factor coming into it? No. We are trying to actually remove that from their heads. We were just going to say, it's, it's still a pitch with white lines, with a referee, with 11 against 11. Don't play the occasion. We just play the game. And, and that's all we focused on. We did our work for this game like we would any other game. We didn't treat it any differently. How impressed were you with Jamie Thompson? I mean, she came off the bench last week and got three, uh, set up the, the goal today for, for Onyo Gorman, and she had a, a player of the match performance. Yeah, she's been brilliant. Um, I know an awful lot of people have been talking and highlighting of all the players that we signed from other clubs but what Shamrock Rovers have produced internally between Jamie, you have Ola O'Matney, you have Abby Tootle, we have Maria, Maria Reynolds, um, they've been top class and they've gone kind of gone under the radar and but they're really really good players and even when you look at their age profile they haven't even reached their best yet, they're really really good young, young players. Psychologically, this is probably an important blow. It's very early in the season, I get that, and Shelburne are as likely to go to Tallinn and get something. But yet, you proved today that you're equal to the task of competing with the League and Cup champions. Yeah, and even with that, we're disappointed probably in patches of how we actually played. We're probably only at 65% of where we really want to be at. Like, those patches there where we were really, really good, and then there was patches where we weren't so good, so... Yeah, there's a lot of improvement to go on for for us. That is Tony O'Donoghue speaking to Collie O'Neill after Shelburne and Shamrock Rovers drew 1-1 in the Women's Premier Division and uh, Champions League now. And the draw was live on the RT News Channel at 11 o'clock last Friday. And it's a very it's it's very interesting when you look at it now. On one side of the draw of the quarterfinals, Real Madrid play at Chelsea, a repeat of last season's quarters. And Man City against Bayern Munich, so Pep Guardiola going to be taking on one of his former clubs. And then the other side of the draw is very interesting. AC Milan taking on Napoli and then Inter Milan against Benfica. And Graham, just looking at that, I think the when we talk about sides of the draw and what a potential final will look like, it, it, there's going to be there's going to be a surprise finalist one way or the other now. Yeah, I think a surprise in terms of like coming out of the Italian league, there hasn't been many teams that have done it in the last few years. Um, obviously, it's been dominated by the Spanish teams, the English teams, and Bayern. Um, but to, to have like a powerhouse like Milan, who have a fantastic Champions League record, and Inter, who would probably be a bit more successful domestically in Italy than, than AC would have been. But AC Milan have this pedigree in Europe that is different to Inter Milan's. Um, maybe goes back to the fact that we grew up on AC Milan in the 90s with the, with the with Hull of Van Basten, Rijkaard, and, and, the, and Maldini and Baresi where Inter would have been more dominant in the 60s, I think. But domestically, Inter would have a lot more. But Napoli are the new kids on the block. Um, yeah, and they're they're going to win Serie A. I think that's just yeah, done and dusted anyway. Thing. So they're, yeah. they're going to win Serie A. So Milan will be thinking, right, we're up against the, 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 the Serie A champions. They, they play a fantastic brand of football, free-flowing. Uh, somebody touched on it. It was anti-positional. I done a, I read a piece in the paper that, was it they, they, they worked that system off an anti-positional play where they go and get bodies around the ball and and, and that's the way they play rather than taking up spaces uh, and Benfica who constantly lose the best players when you consider uh, Enzo signs for Chelsea Nunes signs for uh, Liverpool and yet they're still in in the in this level of, of the Champions League it's fantastic 
And it just shows all the work that goes into the academy system that they have, that they yeah. constantly produce young players. Yeah, and I think sim- similar to Inter as well, they have a huge yeah. pedigree in the 60s as well. You go back to Eusebio and those. Like, ah, I mean, they're, good, yeah. they're a massive, massive, massive club like in European standards, obviously with the Portuguese league not really being in a position to compete. As as you mentioned, they always just lose their best players. Yeah, and it, like I, we we would base a lot, of, a lot of the stuff they do in their academy is interesting for us in, in terms of looking at how they get players through the system. Uh, and they're fantastic, are the number one academy probably in Europe in terms of financially gaining from the sell-ons from their, their youth products. So they, they, they uh, brought in the most finances through that. So um, again, they'll feel like they're in a game against Inter. They can, they can push on and try and get into a semi-final. Napoli will feel their favourites going into Milan. Like you said, after being champions of Scudetto, I don't think anybody wants to draw Napoli in this like I, I could see Napoli going all the way to the final. Um and then again, Real lost the Real lost the um to Barcelona last night, um, two one from a late goal. But for some reason they just perform in Europe. They just have this thing where they just constantly talk about powerhouse in Europe. They just constantly outperform whatever form they're in in the league, you just turn up. And I think they'll get the better of Chelsea over it. City Bayern, I, I I think you fancy City. I think it's going to go down to a Real um, Man City semi-final here. Mm. And if and if it did become a Real uh, Real City semi-final, are you kind of leaning more towards Real than to take one of the places in the final? I think if they don't, I think if City don't probably overcomplicate it. And I know that's and and Gord- Guardiola just seems to do that by by nature. At some point in the competition, he will do that. I I, I just like again, I, yeah, and that's how like. As a coach as well, even to say that, I feel a little bit like, yeah, it doesn't sit well with me saying it because of how good he is. But when you have somebody like Haaland, who's just got a second hat-trick in the space of two games, like he, he, like how Madrid handle him. But if, if you play to his strengths and free him up, I, I can't see them maybe handling him. And if they can do that, I think they probably get the better in Madrid. you seen the first 30 minutes with Liverpool, the intensity they played at. Uh, but Vinicius Junior is fantastic, and he caused trouble, and Benzema caused trouble, and Modric has this way of controlling games and getting even through the bad times when they're struggling. He's willing to ground the ball. He has such bravery, and it's a football bravery to ground the ball in tight spaces and get his team playing and relax them and control the tempo and get them up the pitch or slow the game down when he needs it. His football intelligence is through the roof. So that would be a really interesting one. Uh, but I can see Napoli making it all the way to the final and whether they play City or Real. Every time you write Real Madrid off, you keep coming back. So I don't really want to do it now. Uh. Yeah, they don't, they don't even need to have one of their like classic teams to to get to a final and win it. it was, I would say the one that won it last year probably wouldn't, you know, they've had they've had better teams win the Champions League and have had better teams lose it as well. So And, and Real and Chelsea felt they should have knocked them out. They had enough chances to win the game. And City were the same. They felt they should have knocked them out. They had enough chances to win the game. And we just seen some spectacular goals or comebacks from them where they're never beaten. And it, to, to write them off again, I'd be a fool. And it's so that's why I just say we'll see how that one goes, Raf. 
Yeah, I'd say write them in now and they will. And then <laughs> that's that's how they let us down then. Um, but anyway, that's it uh, for this week's podcast. Uh, remember, Wednesday, the Latvia match is live on RT2, the RT player from 7pm. It's also live on RT Radio 1 Extra and there will be a live blog on rt.ie slash sport. And then France next Monday, also on RT2 and RT player with coverage from seven it's on radio two but uh on that monday it's going to be on two fm's game on and then we'll also have the live blog on rp.ie slash sport uh we'll be back next tuesday rather than monday as we'll be reacting to france versus ireland and the international break as a whole uh the morning after the night before and hopefully we'll be talking about a positive ireland result as well so thanks to Stephen elliott and philippe Claire who joined us earlier on and also to you graham and best of luck pleasure Ralph. thank you <laughs>